Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Scott Tinker, a geologist, educator, energy expert, and documentary filmmaker. He is the director of the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas and the chairman of the Switch Energy Alliance, which aims to inspire an energy-educated future through film. Scott, welcome to the show. Chris, it's great to be here with you. So, Scott, um, you know, I like to sort of get, uh, I mean, not the boring stuff out of the way, but your, your qualifications and things like that. And I like to uh, get my guests to introduce themselves on a more sort of human level. So, Maybe if you could do that, um, focusing on that theme of what got you interested and, and has sustained your interest in energy over these years. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm, uh, well, I'm in my uh, 61st year, <laughs> married for 38 and four great kids. And uh, that's probably what I'm the most proud of. Mm -hmm. The fact that my wife has stayed with me this long is <laughs> quite a miracle. But, you know, we met in high school in 1976, so wow. <laughs> it happened early <laughs> before she got too smart. Anyway, uh, so that, you know, that's that's that. And I've been in energy business my whole life. My dad was a geologist with uh, Shell Oil Company his whole career. And so I was born into it. Didn't think I would go into it myself, Chris, but I did. And was in oil and gas, mostly the research side, but some exploration in Canada, actually, in the mid-80s and 90s. And then came to the university 22 years ago. So that's been my you know, highlight path, quick highlight path. But at the Bureau of Economic Geology, we call it the Bureau. It's an old name. It was formed in 1909. But we look at energy and the environment and the economy and try to bring all those together in research globally. I've got 250 people there. And students and postdocs and scientists of all kinds and engineers and economists. So it's, it's a lot of fun and we're very practical. We've got labs, basic labs, but very applied stuff too. So get all over the world and see industries and governments and academics and NGOs and try to figure out this lovely space overlapping all that I call the radical middle, radically lonely. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, when you find someone who's, you know, truly passionate about their work and it, to the extent that to some degree, it no longer feels like work. I mean, I think that's the only way I can imagine you taking on all the projects that you do that, you know, you just genuinely enjoy this topic. It's kind of an infectious enthusiasm that you see throughout your work, especially in your films. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And Harry Lynch is the filmmaker. I'm just the pretty face, <laughs> the Italian <laughs> with the big nose. But, uh, you know, we definitely work together on those and try to truly maintain a nonpartisan perspective and outcome. And we yeah. do that by having different viewpoints, political viewpoints and backgrounds and all sorts of things that we bring to bear. And, and at the end of the day, we try to feature energy as the star or energy poverty and other things. Um, and obviously there are politics and all those things, but Mm -hmm. You can ferret that out and really try to get more to the critical thinking and and the different pros and cons of all these different aspects. So that's what we try to do. Nobody's perfect. We all have biases, but that's what that's what our goal is. Yeah, for sure we do. For sure we do. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting in terms of my own journey. Um, you know, I'm a emergency medicine physician. Um, I've been pretty passionate about human rights issues and 
you know, um, indigenous migrant health issues, things like that. And then I, I did this huge sort of, I wouldn't call it a U-turn because I still feel like my values very much guide my interests, but got really interested in energy. And, you know, that I think first off came from a disagreement I had with someone about, um, you know, anthropogenic climate change and, and really not having done any of the research to back up my position. Um, which, you know, I, I still believe to be the right position in terms of the reality of anthropogenic climate change. But, you know, I, I didn't really know anything at that time other than sort of the biases of my political tribe. Um, and that kind of led down into looking at, at solutions and, and looking at energy and the need for an energy transition. Um, and then more broadly, I mean, the reason that I'd been interested in, in sort of political action outside of medicine is this concept of, you know, the social determinants or the upstream determinants of health, like why people get sick in the first place. And to some degree that might be genetic propensities and things like that. But so much of it is determined by other factors, you know, diet, exercise, but also urban planning and things like that. And, you know, really coming to look at energy as this kind of master resource and, and determinant of health in some ways, I think how I can sort of coherently <laughs> help people understand why this doctor got, you know, so so deeply into this area. Um, and, you know, in terms of your work, um, I first came across uh, the, your, your documentary, Switch and Switch On. And I think the reason I really wanted to have you on the show um, was because you described this, what you call, I think, the other energy transition. So, I mean, there's obviously in, in wealthy nations throughout the world, we're trying to transition and motivated by concerns with climate towards uh, new forms of energy that, that, you know, don't release CO2 or release a lot less. Um, and we're obviously trying to also kind of impose that model on the developing world. But within the developing world, there seems to be this other transition. Could you describe that for us? Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, on your background, that's, that's a fantastic background to bring to energy. I'm sure you appreciate Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness, and he was a medical doctor as well. And that perspective and the importance of energy to health and human well-being is critical. It, it underpins modern medicines and food and everything, really. So you know, that's one of the great challenges with the, with the still quite broad disparity in human well-being in the world today. It's it's quite broad and it varies even within countries, but certainly across nations and continents. That's one of the great challenges. And so the the transition to me is fascinating. We as a scientist and particularly a geoscientist with kind of a little bit of a deeper view of time, we've been we've been transitioning always. There's nothing static in the world. It's always transitioning. And that includes modern energy. So from wood and hay, which were the <laughs> foundational energies for transportation, hay, <laughs> you know, donkeys and oxen, and wood for fire. And they're carbon. That's all carbon-based stuff through denser forms of carbon like coal, great discovery. And then into liquid hydrocarbons, some more hydrogen with the carbon. And then Natural gases of various kinds, methane dominating CH4, mostly hydrogen, a little carbon, and then eventually into hydrogen. So this transition has been happening naturally for a long time and mostly because of energy density. It just, these are denser forms of energy we're headed towards. And, and as you see the world today, there are still several billion people who live on wood and hay and biomass and 
and some charcoal of various kinds, cooking indoors with it and heating their homes with it. Several billion people. So when you think about, you know, Elon Musk taking rockets into, up into the various places and beyond, mostly on, on natural gas now, used to be, we, you know, some rockets still use hydrogen, but it's a, it's hydrogen fuels or, or natural gas fuels. You're not running them on batteries, <laughs> you know, and, and all the way down to several billion living the way they do that. That defines the transition to me, Chris. No transition can happen without lifting the world out of that kind of poverty. It simply won't work. And, and until I think we all recognize that challenge and that opportunity and how solvable it is, we probably won't get very far. So that's a big component of a transition to me. And that is part of the energy transition is getting affordable and reliable access to energy to all humans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, in your film, you, you focus on, um, you know, some settings where there is, uh, you know, very little energy and, and the kind of poverty that, that accompanies that. But I think one of the most compelling uh, parts of uh, the film switch on has to do with um, this issue of indoor air pollution, which I think kills something like 4 million people per year. And that's, you know, obviously not taking into account all of the um, chronic conditions that arise out of, uh, out of that kind of local air pollution. So that, mm-hmm. that sort of transition, I think you described from biomass towards, um, like LPG liquid petroleum gas for, for cooking, you know, can you tell us a bit more about just getting in there as a filmmaker into the nitty gritty of those environments? Yeah. And they exist across continents. We certainly saw it in Colombia where we were at installing first electricity in an indigenous tribe. Um, the Arhuaco people, Northeast Colombia on the Venezuelan border in the little village of Gunchuqua. And we brought first solar, which is the only kind of energy they invited us to bring and would accept. But while we're there, of course, every mud hut with thatch roofs has an indoor fire pit and you can hardly see or breathe. Cooking indoors in kitchens, etc. They don't have outlets in them of any kind other than the thatch. And that right across to Kenya and Ethiopia, where you see the same kind of almost similar designs, actually, etc. So even in more modern constructed homes that still are cooking indoors, it's about two and a half billion people in the world today, about a third of the world's population that still cook indoors with some form of biomass. And as you said, and you know this very well as a medical professional, that all the derivative health issues that go along with that, obvious ones from particulates and cancers and cataracts, but pneumonia in the kids and and you know, just a whole array, like what would be equivalent of smoking a couple packs of cigarettes a day for everyone. So that is about 3 million people a year that die from it and certainly more affected by it than that. That's more than COVID killed in 2020 mm-hmm. every single year. And and it's so solvable. So as you mentioned, LPG, certainly the ability to deliver canisters of of natural gas of various kinds to cook indoors. And there is no sulfur or nitrogen or particulate matter associated with burning gas, contrary to (laughs) popular belief these days, which would make you think cooking with natural gas would 
is the worst thing in the world. It does have carbon dioxide when you combust it, and that doesn't kill anybody. Mm -hmm. Unless you get, you know, unless you're completely enclosed and it ends up displacing oxygen and you suffocate. But that doesn't happen here. And then, and then perhaps uh, other kinds of gas. We featured biogas in Nepal where you're making organic gases from decomposition of, of dung, yeah. you know, both animal and human wastes. And biogas systems that can be put in locally and you cook with it right in your own home. So it's kind of a nice... Uh, efficient loop there. And, and then even down to electricity or cooktops of various kinds, we showed an induction cooktop, but various kinds of electric cooktops. These all remove the indoor pollution and provide often more affordable, certainly more efficient forms of cooking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it's, it's remarkable how simple this could be, but how impactful it could be. Yeah, no, absolutely. That those those numbers are completely shocking. And I, I think in the film you were saying, you know, it kills more than malaria per year, more than HIV AIDS. I mean, it's it's combined. Malaria yeah, and AIDS combined. combined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and air pollution is it's funny because it's called the invisible killer, but it's actually something we sense, you know, like Yes, the you know the human nose and the olfactory system can remarkably kind of adapt to a new normal um, in terms of odors and, and particulate and things like that. But I mean, it's something that you see in the air. We see smog, right? We see, like you were saying, all the charcoal over the kind of walls of these huts and, and the haze of the smoke in them. And I, I, you know, I sometimes talking about kind of geologic time or kind of evolutionary time, I, I do think it's fascinating that, you know, human beings, we, we co-evolve. We wouldn't be here without combustion, without, you know, the, the ability to burn things so that we can shorten our gut and, you know, use more energy from our brains and things like that, you know. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but it, it is, it's just funny that I think that completely takes away our, our sort of justifiable fear of, of the health impacts. But, you know, that's maybe more of a modern concern. There's an ironic, uh, every, you know, for every action, equal and opposite. Yeah. Reaction yeah. In, in, in India, where we saw deployment of some of these cleaner forms indoors and the consequence happened, the unintended consequence it turns out smoke keeps mosquitoes out. And, and so as it got cleaner in came, came back to malaria. And That's, yeah. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So you really have to begin to think about multiple facets of everything. And I think that's one of the great challenges in energy, even in developed and modern economies. I testified last week to the U S Senate uh, first hearing on climate and carbon was one of the invited witnesses. And, and you see, thoughtful senators on all sides of the political aisle struggling with some of these challenges. And because of the good intentions and the unintended consequences of our actions, we aren't smarter than markets. Usually <laughs> markets mm -hmm. eventually figure things out. Now you can help accelerate them, but yeah, you got, you got to be very, very well educated to outsmart the market. I think and yes. that's, that's my big concern is these political decision makers. They're almost all lawyers and you know, they're communicators. That's their strength. Um, and they're not analysts. They're not engineers. They're not mm -hmm. scientists. And, and, it worries me to no end um, the kind of like I interact with some Canadian politicians, um, you know, as the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, which is one of the other hats I wear. And I'm just without naming names, of course, it's it's stupefying. I was energy illiterate, you know, two or three years ago. And uh, but it's just like if you hold the reins of power in your hands. And you're you're dealing with this this issue, which is you know becoming a real dominant thing on on the political agenda. Like it's incumbent upon you to get educated. 
Yes. Um, and to oversimplify is truly to underestimate, but that doesn't mean it's not solvable. So mm -hmm. these things are solvable. They're just not going to be perfectly politically solvable. <laughs> well, let, let's uh, yeah, let's let's talk yeah. about let's talk about solutions because we're we're introducing climate now, and and you know just actually preparing for this interview, I was kind of thinking a lot, and and I, I spent a lot of time prepping. But you know what I arrived at was this idea that you know energy is so essential for you know especially in the developing world for the kind of immediate improvement in people's lives. And I mean, also for climate resiliency, because, you know, high energy environments lead to development and infrastructure that can dramatically lower the kind of deaths from natural disasters and things like that. So you have, you know, the, the, this kind of emergent need for more energy to just lift people out of poverty and improve their lives. And then that's kind of balanced against this um, future impact um, of a lot of these energy sources in terms of rising CO2 emissions and the, and the impact on climate. And so, you know, with a bunch of my guests, I've been trying to get a sense of, you know, their um, concern about climate change. And I've, I've tried to get people to sort of use words to describe it. And it's not been very successful because almost all the words are pejorative. You know, there's denialists and complacence and whatever else. Right. So I've just gone down to trying to use a scale of one to ten. And I guess I would ask you that, like, how urgent do you think? climate change is um, on a scale of one to 10, one being not urgent, 10 being very urgent, particularly when it comes to steering our energy choices. Yeah. You know, unfortunately I won't answer that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but I will answer it this way. I think the environment is a 10. Okay. Mm -hmm. The environment. Now climate change is, is part of the environment. It's one of the big pillars to be sure. So that gives you a feel that I'm, that I think we, certainly need to address climate change, particularly the, the human impacted component of it. Certainly some of the impacts from climate change that are the things that will affect us all. That's a good, that's a good suite of data to look at, Chris. And, you know, is it really happening? Are the storms more intense? Is sea level rise accelerating? Are the fires uh, more frequent more acreage, et cetera. I mean, when you get down in the data, it's really fascinating what's actually happening compared to what we think might happen. But climate is one pillar. And then there's the land, and then there's water, and there's local air, as we've just been talking about, air. So I have four pillars of the environment, and I think they are all vital to human health and earth health, or justice, if you will. If we were to pick only one of those exclusively and kind of forget about the other three, whichever one you want to pick, we wouldn't do so well. You'd kind of, as I said in my testimony, you'd kind of be, in this case, robbing from, you know, nature Peter to pay climate Paul. And are you, when, you, when you're saying that, are you referring to like a renewables heavy strategy because of like mining and, and land footprints and things like that? Or in what, part, what you, mm -hmm. in part. Uh, what I'm saying is, unfortunately, humans affect the earth <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and energy impacts the earth. Every form of energy requires earth, extensive earth resources, mm -hmm. every single form. Yes, the sun is there when it's daytime and better at lower latitudes and not cloudy. And the wind is there, particularly better in some windy areas and but the things to collect the sun and the wind and convert it into energy that we can use, the solar panels, the wind turbines, the batteries to back them up, 
all of that is mined, all of it is manufactured, and all of it is disposed in landfills when it wears out, and it all wears out. So yeah. when you're mining, manufacturing, and disposing, rip, rip, rinse and repeat, that's not renewable. Mm -hmm. There is no renewable energy. Now, we've allowed that term to filter through our schools and our language because it sounds cool, you know. I've heard it described as kind of the world's greatest marketing campaign. <laughs> well, it's been a terrific one. And, yeah. and then we add words like green and everybody wants green but or clean. And But what do those mean? And I require, I try to be disciplined in my own language and I try to ask others to be specific. If they're saying clean, are they talking about atmospheric emissions or mm -hmm. are they talking about water? Or are they mm -hmm. talking about soil? Or are they talking about local air? Which clean? And if we try to optimize on all of those, there is, unfortunately, there's no perfect solution in energy, but we can start to optimize on the environment when we really begin to consider important things like scale and density, whether it's power density or other forms of energy density and mm -hmm. economics and resources and human health, et cetera, Chris. And so again, you, to, to oversimplify is underestimate, but it is solvable. It's It won't be solved well if we have only one objective function. <laughs> mm -hmm. okay. I mean, I, I think I think it's it's interesting that there's, you know, I think now there's a, a scientific and a political consensus about the reality of, of man-made climate change. And, you know, we're measurably, we're sort of one to getting close to 1.5 degrees warmer than at the beginning of uh, the Industrial Revolution. And so I think there's kind of consensus that by 2100, we're going to hit two degrees. And then the key question in terms of, I think, how to um, balance um, our resources in terms of addressing the four pillars you mentioned is this probability of, of runaway climate change. And the models get very uncertain. Obviously, the more variables you throw in with the more time that's going to pass. Um, and so that, that's, I think, how I'm trying to kind of refine my thinking is, yes. you know, there's there's a non-trivial chance that things mm -hmm. get really, really, really bad with climate change. And, you know, what's our risk tolerance? And then how do we balance those immediate needs of getting people in the developing world out of poverty? And and the kind of like some of the political platforms of, of people that are, you know, invested in sort of degrowth economic agendas. I mean, e even if you kind of could wield the power to enforce that on people. I mean, you'd have bloody revolutions all over the place, right? You're not, you can't keep people down. Um, yeah. And so the question, I mean, and the, the show is called uh, Decouple because of this kind of eco-modernist idea of decoupling, you know, human flourishing, economic uh, flourishing and growth from, from ecologic impacts. And I, I think, and I'd be interested to get your perspective on this, but I think, you know, one of the, sort of showcase decoupling technologies um, because of energy density and because of um, a lack of any air pollution and, and water contamination and lack of emissions is, is nuclear. It seems to check a lot of those boxes. And, you know, Robert Bryce, who I had on a couple of weeks ago, was, was talking about kind of end, end to end uh, natural gas to nuclear. Um, I mean, no one no one seems to talk about it that way because of all the hangups that we have. But what's what's your take on, on nuclear as, as a tool to address? <clears throat> you know, three or four of those, of those pillars. Well, before we get to solutions, um, yeah, I think some things you said there are pretty important to, to dissect a little bit. I've heard fossil fuels, fossil energy compared to smoking. And mm -hmm. you know, that last time I checked, there's not much redeeming in terms of smoking a cigarettes other than you may enjoy it and it may be addictive, but 
you know, it, it's not good for you. It's not good for those breathing the smoke around you. It is addictive, etc. It's expensive. Um, the last time I checked, uh, burning coal and oil and even better natural gas have a tremendous amount of, of positive effects on humans, on our health, on our food, on our homes, on our education. It, the list is literally endless in terms of the positive impacts of energy. And if you don't think that way, go look at the two and a half billion people we shine a light on and switch on and see kids dying of a tooth infection, having eight to 10 children, half of which won't live to adulthood in Benchukwa, um, of of disparate uh, education and unequal education, the rights and freedom of women. Women are going for the water and cooking with the wood and don't get to go to the schools when their male counterparts do. The immigration and migration, lack of of modern medicines or refrigeration for vaccines, the list just goes on and on. So to compare it to smoking, again, is very clever if you're against it, like green and, and other good words, sustainable and renewable. But it's 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 a it's a terrible comparison. It just makes no sense mm-hmm. because energy balances all the good against some downsides. And the other, I think, really important thing is is just thinking of, um, about the distribution of energy. You know, where is it in the world, and and who has it, and why? So. When you start to think about energy resources, they're not evenly distributed. Some people have access to coal, others to oil. And you can think of the geopolitical regions. I could name them. You know, China's big on coal, the Middle East and Russia on oil and natural gas, the U.S. on oil and gas. Some have access to uranium and thorium and are willing to mine it for nuclear. Others have terrific solar, lower latitudes, southwest United States, for example, Spain, etc., Others have access to geothermal, some right at the surface, Iceland and California yeah. and Southeast Asia, others more distributed and et cetera. So they're going to use what they have where they have it. That's the reality of re- energy resources. We can't judge for that. Um, but again, as you go up the density scale away from very low dense things like batteries, solar and wind, and then through woods and coal coals of various kinds to liquids of various kinds from petroleum for the most part. And then, and into natural gases and then hydrogen more and more dense and nuclear, you see a tremendous uh, leveraging effect of that density in the equation. It doesn't take as much land. It doesn't impact as much water, you know, uh, local air. When you have dense energy, you can do, you get a lot more bang for the buck, okay, in energy terms. So you can, you can do things that you can't with low density energy and low density energy takes a tremendous amount of stuff to collect it and convert it. And that stuff has environmental impact. So I think where you're headed with nuclear is a reasonable extrapolation of energy density because the radioactive elements of uranium and thorium for the most part, when split (laughs) fission, create a bunch of heat. And we can contain the heat from that reaction now and boil water, make steam, turn a turbine and run a generator. 
That's how we make electricity with thermal, whether you're burning coal, natural gas, oil, or you're getting heat from the sun or geothermal heat. You know, it's basically boiling water. So mm-hmm. nuclear is very efficient at doing that. And it has no emissions other than steam of any kind in the local air or the atmosphere. A lot of positives there, no doubt about it. It does have the radioactive waste, fission products for the most part. Some are pretty manageable. You can vitrify them or silicify them and bury them in in concrete or geological repositories. And it also has, you know, a few percent of, let's say, you know, higher impact products (laughs) and plutonium and other kinds of things you have to be very careful with and handle well. You can't make a nuclear weapon out of plutonium from a power plant, but it gets you closer to weapons grade stuff. So that you have to manage very well. I think that scares people, both the the potential of radioactivity as well as, as the potential for for weaponizing those who lived through the Cold War. And yes. I understand that emotional reaction, but it is mostly emotional. It's not it's not logical in a sense of, hey, nuclear is the safest form of energy per kilowatt hour. It absolutely is. <laughs> you know, nothing even comes close. But it's still, it's that it's those passions you say, you use words like believer denier, those are just religious terms, they're not scientific terms. But it's that passion that humans feel around something. And we have to figure out how to lift ourselves in education to get over some of the fears which are not warranted or some that are but can be managed. And mm-hmm. and that's where nuclear falls to me is a very logical component of the future, that particularly if you're very, very focused on climate change. It's tough to see a much uh, uh, um, a affordable scalable and timely emissions reduction in the world, timely meaning a couple of decades or less without nuclear in it. Well, and durable as well. I think that's a really key thing because, you know, renewable <laughs> renewables are not renewable in terms of the the machines that harvest the, the that renewable energy of, of the wind and, and the sun. And they need to get swapped out every 20 to 30 years. And they're obviously made up of hundreds of tons of steel for, you know, wind turbine, et cetera. But let's well, and a lot of, uh, and you know, and solar panels and the batteries to back them up, a lot of toxic, toxic elements as well. And, and those wear out and they do yeah. get buried. We recycle some, but that takes a lot of energy itself. And then the other thing is, depending on where you live, is the security of supply. Yeah. Right now, we're, we're proposing to legislate a shift to electric vehicles. <laughs> we're going to tell the markets what they can sell, which is kind of an ironic thing to think about. But let's say we go down that road and we can do some simple arithmetic. There's about 1.3 billion vehicles in the world today, electrifying half of that fleet, let's say 600 to 700 million of those. What would it take in terms of batteries? And and most people do not know, like a Tesla S, the beautiful four-door sedan, has, has 7,100 lithium-ion batteries in it in one yeah. car, you know, yeah. they're three inches long and inch in diameter cylinders. They make up the whole floorboard and come up the sides. So, you know, you do the math on, on 600 million times, let's just use 5,000, less than 7,000 to make it simple. That's 3 trillion, 3 trillion with a T, new lithium ion batteries 
that have to be remade every 10 to 15 years or so. And we're making tens of billions a day for all our gadgets. So it's, it's a thousand times more, a hundred to a thousand times more than yeah. we do today. And then you have to do it again. So who controls the lithium and the cobalt and the nickel and the copper and the polysilicon and all the things that go into the solar panels and the batteries? The global mining is largely controlled now in the last 15 years by China. Mm-hmm. So you're essentially moving oil from OPEC as yeah. security supply to China. And you can, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm not putting a qualifier. I'm just saying you have to know what you're doing and decide if that's good or bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A quick question for you. Um, you know, certainly concerns about peak oil are, are have been knocked probably a century or more <laughs> into the future um, with, uh, with the shale revolution or the fracking uh, revolution, however you want to kind of whatever language you want to use. So there's this question of, you know, peak supply versus peak demand. And, and I do hear people saying that, okay, sure, there's, there's, you know, many, many more years worth of fossil fuels than we thought, but demand is going to go down because of, you know, energy transition. In terms of your kind of global perspective as an analyst and, and you know, all of the, uh, all the expertise that you hold, what do you feel about kind of peaking of energy demand? Certainly COVID, you know, shut a lot of things down and demand dropped, but yeah, we're, we're, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, it's coming right back to where it was. One of the most brilliant guys I've ever known and worked with <clears throat> and just thoughtful is a guy named Jesse Osabel. And Jesse works at Rockefeller University's faculty there in Woods Hole. And he coined the term decarbonization, thought about it 30 years ago. He actually helped form the IPCC. He's an environmentalist, environmental faculty member. <clears throat> he gives wonderful talks. Uh, very rarely. You're lucky to get him or hear him. But I remember one he gave called of chickens and gallium. (laughs) What's that? He actually looked at a hundred global commodities, resources, commodities in the world. And only two of the hundred that he found actually peaked (laughs) because of of a supply issue. Mm. And, and Everything else, and even those, he laughed and said, they probably won't. Everything else, it doesn't peak because we run out of stuff necessarily. Now, we would have killed all the whales had something better not come along. But what happens when you start to get stresses on the supply of something you want and need, it gets more expensive, basic economics, and then it motivates you to look for other options and alternatives. Sometimes those alternatives are just more liquids like natural petroleum replaced whale oil instead of kerosene. We got it. <clears throat> same liquids. Sometimes they're actually better. The product ends up being better. Like a cell phone is better than my landline because I'm not connected to a wall with it. And I can do all sorts of other smart things on it now, or at least most people can. I can't, but most people can. And, and so it's a better technology and it's taking over. <clears throat> uh, electric vehicles are not better than internal combustion engines. It's the same thing. You know, it's a motor that's more efficient than a combustion engine, but the, but the fuel, the battery is way less efficient than gasoline or diesel or other things. So overall, it's just different. And, and so will it replace the internal combustion engine? You know, if you force it to legislatively, but we might regret that because of all the mining we've already discussed. I, I think the, the challenge with peaking is you see when things get more expensive, demand does tend to peak because we switch to other things as a function of economics. So oil, 
oil is remarkable fuel. It, it's, it's, it's hard to replace it for many things, especially transportation. Now, there are a couple options. Electric vehicles is one, and then fuel cells, with hydrogen fuel cells is another, that do similar things. And I think we'll eventually transition away from burning gasoline and burning diesel, and maybe even burning compressed natural gas, into electricity of some kind, whether it's fuel cells and or batteries of today or tomorrow. And that will be because those will become more efficient and less expensive. And that's a demand driver there. And then oil will be used for the things that it's still used for. So you'll see a peak in oil demand. Not not any time on the nearest horizon, but it's definitely, you know, we're seeing that plateau already start to happen with oil and coal as well, not natural gas. Natural gas is growing tremendously and it should. Very different. It's hydrogen, not carbon for the most part. So this is these are the complexities of this conversation, but it needs to be, I think, again, as we started, mostly driven by, by markets and enabled by government, thoughtful governments uh, to let markets work so that the best things come out of it, Chris, you know, that advance technology and advance humankind, as opposed to picking winners and trying to force things that will always have unintended consequences. I think it's interesting, like when we, we talk about kind of carbon intensity of, of fuel sources, um, we tend to kind of make it binary between sort of high and low emitting sources. But there's, you know, a lot of in between there. I mean, coal, you know, let's say it's about a thousand grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Natural gas, I guess there's some controversy with fugitive emissions, but, you know, we'll quote maybe 400 Um you know, I don't, I would say nuclear's life cycle by IPCC is around 12. So, I mean, that's ultra, ultra low, almost, almost nothing. And then renewables, I'd probably put in around 200 because so far they've required natural gas backup. So there's this, this much broader spectrum. What is your take on, um, you know, certainly there's uh, an abundance of different uh, assessments of the degree of fugitive emissions within the natural gas sector and the, you know, the climate impacts of, of methane being, you know, over a 20 year period, I think 70 times greater over a hundred year period, 20 times greater than CO2. Some people say it's as bad as coal. I think that's probably an exaggeration, but where do you stand on that issue of, of fugitive emissions? How reliable is the, are the, are the estimates and what, what do you think the impact is on that, on that fuel source? Obviously the air pollution benefits are, are night and day, but on, on the climate impacts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the air pollution benefits of gases versus coal and oil are much better, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you burn them, sure, uh, methane is is a more intense greenhouse gas. It's shorter lived in the atmosphere than CO two, and they're both greenhouse gases. They're both heat trapping gases. So we shouldn't be leaking methane or flaring methane. We sh- and I've said this for years, and I you know I've pushed the oil industry forever and pushed Texas, and now we're finally creating legislation and the rules to capture and use that energy source. It's uh, it's one of the byproducts of producing a lot of oil quickly without gathering lines and infrastructure to capture it. And it just got out in front of it. And, and so, look, there's no, to me, there's no real big discussion. Should we capture the methane and use it or not? Yes, of course we should. You know, not flare it and not leak it. You're leaking energy and you're leaking money. So it's both of those things aren't very bright. 
CO2 uh, tougher to capture it because it, you know, they're point sources and mobile sources and they're everywhere. Large, large volumes. I full disclosure, we've been in the carbon capture and, and utilization and storage for 20 years now, one of the leading research groups in the nation at the Bureau. And, and so have been doing it, putting it into brines, doing experiments, scaling those experiments globally. Texas has a huge opportunity in the offshore to do this, like 30 gigatons of storage capacity, 30 billion tons. The U.S. total emissions from all human sources is five. So that's six full years of U.S. alone in the Texas waters. And you add another 100 gigatons if you go into the federal waters. So it's it's technically feasible. The volumes are there. It could take the rate and et cetera. It's a cost. You know, CCUS is a cost. It costs money to capture it, compress it, put it into a supercritical phase, inject it and store it, and then monitor and verify it's staying there. Well, it also, it also costs energy, right? And if that energy is is producing a lot of emissions, you kind of chase your tail, I think. Anything, uh, anything you strap on to an energy producer, whether yeah. it's a particulate scrubber or a SOX or NOX or CO2, yeah. they're all, they all have an energy penalty. Yeah. And that's, and that's a cost penalty. And that's why China sometimes turns all that stuff off on their coal plants. <laughs> it makes electricity yeah. cheaper, but, but, you know, so for climate, absolutely. We need to continue to capture and manage the emissions products of combustion on the other hand, as we've already talked about, there's not a, a good and bad or clean and dirty solution here. I, I, I simply don't think people fathom what three trillion batteries looks like. So let's just have some fun. We'll cover your a Canadian football field with solid lithium ion batteries from a Tesla S, just blanket it, no space, right? That's mm-hmm. about three million batteries. To get to three trillion, that solid battery stack would go up 30 kilometers into the air <laughs> above weather balloons, solid yeah. stack of lithium ion batteries. And then you do it every 15 years. Now the amount of material mined to make that tower is X times more than that. And where does it all go? And, and you start looking at these big mines and then the human rights violations from cobalt in Africa and China, this is not trivial. So the challenge, I think, Chris, is for when people look at an oil rig, they can think dirty oil and et cetera. But, you know, really, when we see a wind turbine and a solar panel and a battery, we should be thinking about a mine. Mm-hmm. That's what should come to our head is a mine. And I'm not, look, I'm a geologist. I don't mind mining. <laughs> if you don't grow it, you mine it. Okay. But we have to be cognizant of where things come from and then where they go when they wear out, which they do. And I, right now, I just don't think people are processing that yet. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think um, like it's, it's very interesting because I see you as kind of this energy diplomat you talk about in your films, like energy is the star of the production. And uh, you know, you're a very pleasant guy. You're kind of a, why can't we all just get along sort of attitude, I think, towards the various energy sources. You know, there's there's no such thing as clean and dirty. There's trade-offs, et cetera. But you know, I think it's uh, for me, like I'm maybe I take a bit of a different angle on it, but there's obviously a lot of competing interests between these different sources. So, for instance, you know, I, I live, I call it affectionately kind of the France of North America, Ontario, we're about 65 percent nuclear. 
Um, and one of our plants is, is scheduled to be shut down and not, not refurbished. And, you know, the amount of natural, it's a three gigawatt plant, you know, Canada oh, wow. can do, you know, eight packs or four packs or six packs. I mean, we produce so much energy on such a tiny footprint. It's, it's pretty astounding, but Absolutely. in any case, when you know, there's this competing interest, because we have all of these gas plants that have a capacity factor of, you know, four or 5% right now, but are going to kick up to replace that three gigawatts. And for me, it's, it's, um, you know, there is this competing interest, like natural gas stands to benefit when a nuclear plant shuts down. Um, and, you know, I'm involved in a campaign to try and save that plant. And I'm, I'm getting kind of creeped by Enbridge gas. And you know, I'm just noticing, I'm like, why are they on my face or my LinkedIn profile all of a sudden? But there's very real competing interests. Yes. And for me, it's like, it's a step backwards to, you know, if we're going up this energy density ladder, like, yes, natural gas better than coal, but like, what on earth are we doing replacing nuclear with natural gas? And, and, and for me, yeah. Yeah, same in France. They're talking about shutting down some nuclear. I, I spent a lot of time with Total two weeks ago and I'm going to meet with their leaders this summer. It's crazy. You know, you, that is a step backward. And then, and, and so, yes, baseload or let's call them dispatchable sources of, of electricity, coal, natural gas and nuclear. And then hydro, as long as it's good, you know, you got plenty of rain and geothermal. If you've got the field, these compete to provide dispatchable resources. Coal competes with gas, gas competes with nuclear, et cetera. And then they all are sort of competing, but not really with solar and wind, which are being legislatively driven now. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with those is you can't, they're not dispatchable. They're yeah. not baseload. You have to have all these other things sitting idle to back them up. And that's, that's, and they're much lower density. So that's, that's a giant step back in terms of energy density and reliability. And it turns out in terms of cost as well. And again, in Senate testimony last week, everybody talks about LCOE, the levelized cost of electricity or energy. And they think levelized means it's actually levelized, (laughs) but it's not. You know, uh, it's comparing the cost to generate a a unit of electricity at the plant gate. And yes, solar and wind have come down, in fact, below coal and some places natural gas. But it doesn't include the cost, the redundant cost of backup. Yeah. LCOE doesn't include that, which has to be a hundred percent and it's very expensive. So when you put that back into it, Chris, the, the cost of electricity to the consumer, the retail price is still more. Ask California, ask Germany, you know, ask the Northeast US what they pay for electricity and why. And that is regressive. When you are paying more for electricity, and you have in your income, your family income is much lower, the proportional cost of that electricity to your family is greater. And that's what regressive is. So I really, again, don't think everybody's fully processing the the nuance here, which isn't even nuance of intermittency versus reliability of density, low and high density of environmental impacts, whether it's the atmosphere or to the land. So, yeah, I'm kind of, can't we all get along? But trust me, there are some forms of energy that that make sense depending on the life cycle of your economy. Okay, mm-hmm. like in Kenya, we put, we brought first solar out to a Maasai family that has nothing. And that brought light 
and a telephone and a radio and is remarkable. But it isn't the kind of electricity you and I live on. It's mm. not ever going to be close to that. And so, the, yes, distributed renewables make sense for a billion people. But let's not confuse that with powering major cities, which is where you know the migration to cities continues globally, eighty over the eighty percent in developed nations and moving from twenty to eighty and developing and emerging. Dense cities need dense energy. <laughs> you, you take a three gigawatt nuclear power plant down with capacity factors of probably 60, 70, 80%. Oh, oh, we're, we're 95%. We just had a run at one of our candidates for over three years, a thousand yeah. and six yeah. days. So yeah. There you have it. You know, you're generating almost a full capacity. You try to replace that with intermittent energy with capacity factors from 15 to 35% and even coal and natural gas, you, you're just going to be building a lot more stuff and burning yeah. a lot more stuff and using a lot more nature. And it just, it makes no sense. Okay. And I, I can't, I, you can't, uh, it's hard to argue logically with that kind of driver. <laughs> and part of it is philosophical. Part of it is fear. Part of it is Economics, you know, they're truly people competing for market share across the space. It, have you read uh, Michael Schellenberger's new book, Apocalypse Never? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's worth it. And, you know, he, he lots of good things in there, I think, that where he kind of lays out these competing things in one of the middle chapters of how nuclear got crushed by, you know, by folks like Henry Lovins and, and Bill McKibben and others who who really had a very strategic campaign <laughs> to to take them down and it was successful mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean speaking of uh like the regressive nature of these policies which are kind of ironically pushed by i guess what was they're, they're kind of children of the traditional left um and, and so there's been this total kind of flip in the politics but i think in your in your film uh switch you, you're, you're talking with a guy in the texas uh, wind industry um, and talking about the challenges of intermittency and, you know, there's drops of, you know, thousands of megawatts, you know, to zero in a couple minutes, but also the need for transition of these energy dilute sources to get to dense cities. And I think you said that they were involved in building a $5 billion transmission system. Yeah. And, you know, who pays that cost? Is it the people <laughs> building the wind farms who are, you know, reaping big yeah. profits off of the cheap LCOE? Or is it the ratepayer and everyday people that are, you know, being regressively taxed for it through. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an everybody pays model in Texas. Texas has its own grid. It's called ERCOT, the Electri mm -hmm. Electricity Reliability Council of Texas. So we have this interesting experiment, covers almost all of Texas and nowhere else. So we can kind of measure what 23 gigawatts of wind does in a system <laughs> and how right. do you back it up? Um, and it's, it's abject terror in the summer evenings with rolling brownout potential every time the wind goes down and you got to fire up enough backup immediately to cover the demand. And so you start looking at that, uh, that wind it's, it, it is, it's five major 345 KV power lines to the demand centers from where the wind is blowing, which is quite far away in Texas. And that is an everybody pays model. It was put into everybody's rate base. And that's probably the, I guess the fairest way to do it is just that the the person who makes a lot less money is going to be paying proportionally more for their cost, right? And and then there are ways people try to get around that. But 
it's but I mean, if, the owner, if the owners of the wind farms aren't paying for it, or at least paying yeah. for a substantial portion, they're getting a real sort of an, an additional subsidy, right? Absolutely. You know, it'd be like building the pipelines for the natural gas producers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, you should all pay for that. That'd be that, great. You know, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, the, there's a nature brings us experiments now and then. And this is a fascinating one, kind of coming back to the whole climate conversation a little bit. With COVID, we shut down the world's economy for quite some time and I'm bringing it back now. As a result of that, we use less energy. You know, that's a given. And that means we put less CO2 into the atmosphere. Interestingly enough, even with quite a bit less CO2, it still warmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and an interesting article came out just last week that got very little press that said, gee, that's weird. <laughs> and they said, yeah, it's because of the particulates. It turns out when you burn coal and mostly coal and oil as well, there are little there are particulates yeah. that go in the atmosphere and they reflect the sun. With snow, we call it the albedo effect, but yeah. so that reflectance cools the earth. So you have these things working counter, the heat trapping gases and then the reflectance stuff, both from burning fossil fuels. Now, isn't that interesting? But but apparently the reduction in CO2 wasn't offset by the reduction in particulates and it's still warmed. Now, why is that why is that interesting? Because nobody really modeled it that way. And it says to me, man, this multivariate complex nonlinear climate system is all of those things. It's a bloody hard problem. I respect tremendously the people who try to model the climate, but there's still work to do to understand all these feedbacks. I think people truly believe we're making policy. If you just dial in CO2 of this amount, we'll get a temperature of that amount. And none of the models show that, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a huge range of future model outputs and we don't really even have all the big things like particulates quite right yet. And this is not a knock on climate modeling. Again, it's a brutal problem, but it does say how fast do we want to accelerate? You know, let's just use it in simple insurance terms. You know, I've got a $200,000 house. Am I going to spend 20,000 a year to insure it? Yeah, every, basically every decade paying for the equivalent of the house. Well, yeah, probably not going to burn down in 10 years. Most houses don't burn down ever. That's why we have actuarials. So I probably won't spend 20,000. I might spend 2,000 or 1,000 to insure that $200,000 home. Would we spend $2 trillion to assure a $20 trillion economy? I guess we will, you know, and, and it's interesting because you have to start truly asking what are the impacts are going to, we all say climate change. Well, what, what is it, you know, what part of the warming capacity and what is it driving that we need to protect, mitigate, and insure against? And what are the actuarials on those things? And I think we really need to think, dive into that and be very thoughtful about rates of sea level rise and intensity of fires and storms. And, you know, you'll hear correctly that, that the number of named storms in the North Atlantic was the highest on record. And that's true. But when you go dig into the rest of the data, you look at total storm days and total storms and, and, and storm intensity and other things were kind of 
sort of high, but they were a bunch of years that have been higher than those. And then you ask, how did the Pacific do? Well, it was one of the lower years on record. And so yeah. the implication immediately when you when you say the it's the highest number of named storms, it's that's climate change and it's wrecking the world. Well, it's kind of interesting that if you look at global storms and a bunch of different measures, really wasn't that unusual of a year. Yeah, I think, I mean, what's, what's more concerning to me is the sort of velocity of the change and comparing that to, say, like the Paleo-Eocene thermal maximum and, you know, a process that took hundreds of thousands of years and, and we're kind of zipping along in, uh, maybe. in decades. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm going to say maybe because you really have to look at the data to say that we're accelerating the change and you really got to dig into that data. And not yeah. I'm not talking about warming the earth. I'm talking about its impacts. And... And I'm not smart enough, but and we can say, well, thousands of authors have done it and they have, but there's a lot of thoughtful people too that are diving into the data and going, wait a minute. <laughs> so I think it gets down to actuarials, Chris. It's, it's, it's how much do you want to spend to insure against that? And how much do you want to deploy in low emissions technologies to mitigate it potentially? And what okay. is their impact going to be yeah. on the rest? nature i mean and that's that's the thing though is i think that we're so trapped in thinking of energy transition as being renewables based like we've we've swallowed mm -hmm. hook line and sinker largely um you know especially those folks who are not really reading and understanding energy and even in this idea of 100 percent renewables which is you know completely yes. insane when you look at it but you know if we were looking at you know a a, a transition towards a, a speedier transition towards nuclear i mean there's again in terms of your four pillars there's all sorts of benefits there there's big economic benefits in terms of, you know, employment, um, steady employment at these plants versus kind of, you know, short-term construction and installation with renewables. Like it just, for me, it, it really shifts the metric and it's like, okay, we have a non-trivial chance that really bad shit will happen with climate change. We're not certain it's <laughs> modeling there is possible. And, and I would say that we should embark on an ambitious uh, transition and that we should intervene in the market because the market's not going to prioritize climate per se. There needs to be some degree, but but we need energy experts guiding that that policy making. And really, for me, all arrows point towards a, a very kind of nuclear dominant, particularly for electricity. But, you know, I think for other areas as well, like district heating and other ways to decarbonize, if we went on that strategy, that, that's certainly more my recipe. And it's it's a you know fairly hopeless uphill battle based upon all of the kind of cultural hangups that, that exist because of the trauma of the Cold War and and the, you know, utter inability to understand dosimetry when it comes to radiation and the relative risks of, of radiation compared to air pollution and other things. But right, right. that's, that's, I guess, like where, where we would differ is I, I think you take a bit more of an agnostic approach in terms of certainly, I mean, what you're sta stating is that there's, there's trade-offs with everyone and, and, you know, energy density does tend towards being a, a guidance towards, you know, a better solution. But um, yeah, it's, and I just, I had to answer questions in Senate follow-up, but I just literally finished them the, the, late this morning, last yeah. night. Um, and one of them was on energy density. And right where you are with that, I don't disagree at all. I think there is potential for deployment of technologies that will feel different to people in the public, with whether they're small modular reactors or other kinds of, of newer technologies, things like new scale makes, or even nuclear batteries potentially that that will right now people don't seem to be against and and politicians so maybe there's a way to 
bring some of that technology into the marketplace. And look, 50 megawatt, 100 megawatt, 150 megawatt, a lot of places that's all they need. Yeah. And, and, and so that is an accelerator. And again, China's building nuclear reactors. The UAE just deployed one. I hope India goes down that road once they realize that coal is is not going to be a good thing for them. And look, there's another 1.2 billion people. So globally, I think nuclear still has a fairly bright future. I am kind of dismayed like you are with the U.S. and Western Europe response to things because it seems so covariant to the climate passion out of coming out of the same mouths. <laughs> so I'm not going to kid you that I think we should all go agrarian and go back to growing f- energy. I, there are some energies I don't think are very bright. Okay. <laughs> like, like biomass is what you're mentioning there, I guess. Yeah. For the most part, you know, there's a few places it kind of works, but for the most part, converting carbohydrates to hydrocarbons isn't too brilliant. It takes a lot of energy and nature right. already did it. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not arguing with that. I just think you have to, you have to think about hydrogen and its role how energy gets used. Can you truly electrify everything or do you still need some liquids, uh, et cetera, et cetera, Chris. And, and that, that kind of paints a little different transition perhaps for me than you, although (laughs) it doesn't sound like we're disagreeing too much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess one, one last question on nuclear and we will wrap up soon because, uh, you've sounded like you've had a busy day already, but you know, it's interesting. I think the places where nuclear has really taken off or the, the I guess, the epoch or the time in which they really have is, has had a lot to do with um, scarcity of, of fossil fuel, whether that's an absolute scarcity like France, which is not blessed with any real oil or coal reserves or kind of political um, inaccessibility such as the OPEC crisis. And, you know, for me, uh, to me, it seems like the shale revolution has... I mean, Fukushima was obviously a major, um, it majorly sort of shut down the, the nuclear renaissance that was beginning in, in the first decade of the 2000s. But, you know, with all that uh, abundant gas available and, and just seeing actually what it's already doing, I mean, Europe is, is shutting down their nuclear. And even though they're, they're talking a big game about wind and solar, you know, most of their renewable energy is actually biomass. And then most of yep. what's going to replace their, their nuclear plants is Russian gas and um like this, we were talking about su- supply versus demand. I mean, the supply metric just got drastically changed. And and I guess my fear is that that's going to, you know, it would be good for replacing coal, but it's it's going to uh, certainly delay a move towards sort of the ultimate in energy density. <laughs> you can see my, my pro-nuclear biases, but yeah. Yeah. If you, if you look at Vaslav Smil's power density rankings, nuclear and, and natural gas or hydrogen are fairly close to one another. He accounts for all of land use for the full cycle, or tries to. So I agree with I agree with you. I I, I think I think natural gas, methane, and and nuclear are really the the future. I truly do, and they give you some optionality in transportation as well as power gen, and then other things we use natural gases for, from fertilizers and synthetics to a variety yeah. of other things. Um, so. I do think that, and and it, it depends on the resources that you have. You can eventually natural gas gets limited. It's a long way out. <laughs> we, again, Jesse Osabel, the guy I mentioned, led for a decade something looking at deep carbon and deep carbon sources and abiogenic carbon. And I used to kind of scoff at that, but I don't really scoff anymore. The the sources of methane from deep in the earth, as well as hydrates, which you and I haven't even mentioned, tremendous amount of methane locked up in clatherets in the ice. So 
look, there's there's a lot of methane in the world, and I think it can help address emissions for sure, and it can certainly help with land and water and air. So those are all good things. It It's not quite where nuclear is. On the other hand, you got the technological challenges of nuclear and the emotional challenges. Mm-hmm. I, I hope they both come to play a significant role as we roll this out into the future. Yeah. One last question, um, and I don't kind of mean it as a gotcha question, but you know, you, you're you, the reason I think that you're able to produce these amazing films and, and make them free to the public, which is an enormous resource. I mean, I'd never gotten sort of a virtual tour of a coal plant or the Norwegian hydro facilities, like just amazing resources. But I think one of the reasons that you were able to make them in such high quality and make them free is because you take sort uh, you take funding from a whole variety of sources, including foundations and. Um, government and and uh, and I guess the fossil fuel industry as well to some degree. D- do you feel like that impacts your editorial line? Like it, you know, you were sort of like I'm going to avoid answering that question about the sort of climate concern scale. How 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 does that kind of impact your work? Yeah, I didn't avoid it because of of that. I avoided it because I don't think climate is the only thing. I think there's other things. Absolutely, we get we get sort you know we get funding from oil and gas companies, power companies, foundations, individuals. Uh, just got Microsoft just joined the Switch Energy Alliance board and has invested in us. And and so I know source of funding is something that people pull up. I think it's kind of a red herring in many ways, Chris. And here's why. Uh, Jeff Bezos just put aside a $9 billion fund and I think put about $900 million to work in Rocky Mountain Institute and Environmental Defense Fund, NRDC, you know, and Jeff has an agenda, right? So are we going to say that all those groups are now biased? Uh, <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, you know, and and so I would ask what we do, and I don't know how everyone else works, we 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 don't it's a gift. There's no editorial control, there's no there's no content control. Everybody who gives money to the Switch Energy Alliance sees the products when the public sees them. We we create them without any input and right. that's the that's the gift that needs to be given or we don't take the money now they've all been willing to do that they say great just go make nonpartisan objective things and let the let the world see and decide i think most for reasons that you've described most most companies would be great if it was just objective um, i think candidly i think more of your bias comes from trying to push things onto the public that perhaps don't fully hold the water or carry the water. And I would ask the same question if we're going to talk about funding in reverse then is a dollar from say, pick your favorite big NGO, big green. Are they going to allow you to say fracking is okay? Actually, we looked at all of it and it didn't kill anybody or hurt anybody. Are they going to allow that report to come out? If, if the answer is no, well, there's your bias, because if we come out with a report that says fracking is doing these things, it's coming out. <laughs> I don't care where the money comes from. And and so you got to really look at what's generated. And I know that takes time, but get away a little bit from this thought that the dollar is directly tied to bias. It It may be, but I would argue it's probably more tied that way, depending on the level of activism that that dollar is sourced from. Yeah. And there's, look, there's no good way to do this either. How do you, how do you raise money? 
how does anybody raise money to make high quality stuff? Okay. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think there's bias running through, through absolutely everything. And, you know, hopefully that's what universities train people to do, to be critical thinkers. And I mean, they should be critical of everything and, and your, including your materials. But I, I, again, I do have to say that, um, you know, incredible value in, in those, at least the, the stuff that I've been able to sort of scratch the surface on with, with switch and switch on, um, you know, just a little promo blurb for me in terms of this podcast. They're well worth checking out. Just uh, improve your energy literacy, get a get a better sense of what's out there, how people are living. I appreciate it. Yeah, and, and just to mention a couple things, we've got primers or primers coming out on energy poverty now, five or six of those. We've got some, uh, we've got our episodes out that have, and they all have questions for educators Switch Classroom is out. It's a really beautiful platform to for teachers to create their own content and curriculum. We de- we worked with teachers to develop the questions and the short answers and all those things, and they can modularly package this all together. It's been picked up by like 1,500 teachers since it was released a couple months ago across the U.S. and the globe. We've just got a new museum film finished called Energy Makes Our World. It's five minutes long, IMAX quality. We premiered it on IMAX two weeks ago. Wonderful original sound and symphony score. And it's just, it's no, it's no dialogue, Chris. It's a, I have a cameo as a school bus driver for one second, but it's kids getting off a bus and everything in their world is disappearing. They don't notice it for a while. And then we just look at that, the full cycle, uh, global chains with, with text coming up in multiple languages of what it takes in the world to bring you a home, to bring Mm -hmm. you water, to bring you food, to bring you electronics and to bring you energy. And in five minutes, you have a pretty good understanding of how energy makes our world. And so we hope to get that in museums across the world. It's again, it's free to them. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a lot of fun things and just trying to help raise that energy education. Yeah. All right, Dr. Scott Tinker, thank you for coming on Decouple. It's been a pleasure having you. Well, it's been great to visit and keep up the great work and hope to see you in Canada someday. eh? If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.